It's good to be with y'all this morning. Um, actually, was with y'all maybe a year and a half, two years ago when you were in the other location. Um, I work for RUF, as David said. If uh, gotta, I'm going to disappoint you, give you two reasons to be disappointed right out of the gate. Let's just get the bad news out of the way. Um, what I do for a living is I make sure PCA pastors have health insurance. And what you're thinking right now is, does that mean I get to take a nap for the next 30 minutes? Maybe. Um, but also, we're going to get into this psalm, and you'll notice it ended with this like expression of joy. I'm not going to define joy for you this morning. We're going to talk about it a lot, but I'm not going to define it. So here's your first homework assignment. At lunch today, debate what you think joy means, and I'll give you two prompts. First of all, it's obviously something that feels good. But secondly, it's not mutually exclusive with suffering. We're going to talk about it. I'm not going to define it. Your first homework assignment is define what you debate that at lunch today, what joy is. Let me pray for us, then we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this song. Thank you for your servant David and his eloquence. Um, but we need your Holy Spirit to come and teach us these things that while we hear it and there are elements of it that impact us. True change happens when your Holy Spirit comes with your word and does work in our heart so that we don't just hear ideas that we like, but actually real deep transformation that we can't even really understand begins to happen. So we need you to be with us now for that work to happen. So come and be near to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, gosh, we're just starting with a lot of bad news. I'm, here's the next thing. I'm not good at poetry, and this is a poem. Uh, a good friend of mine, the campus minister at Vanderbilt, Richie Sessions, loves poetry. Every time we hang out, he brings a new poem he either wrote or that he's read recently. And when he reads the poetry to me and explains it, it feels like the mysteries of the universe come open. And, uh, and on three occasions now, I've had Richie read poetry and explain it to me. And I've gone to Amazon Prime and bought the book he's talked about, gotten it two days later, opened it up, and have been completely lost. I don't know how to do it on my own. So what I want to do today is hopefully do this, is talk through a poem that God gives us through a servant, David. And Paul tells us this, and maybe you're like me and you struggle with poetry. About as close as I get to being able to resonate with poetry is um, there are certain Billie Eilish songs that I resonate with. That's how, I, that's where I am. <laughs> okay. But Paul tells us this about Scripture. All of Scripture, which includes poetry is breathed out by God and it's useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So here's what I hope to do with Psalm 16 today. I hope that you get a toolkit. You get one, actually you get one tool for your toolkit and you can put it in your back pocket and here's the tool that I think Psalm 16 gives us and can be for us today. It's a tool for praying yourself back to joy. That's what we see David do right here, is pray himself back to joy. That sounds like a good tool to you. I think it probably does. That's what I hope you think kind of conceptually. Is, Here's what I'm going to get today is a tool. I can put it in my toolkit, and when I need to pray myself back to joy, I can go to Psalm 16. And so here's the first point that's really simple uh, and may or may not confront some of us in different ways. The first point is this. God made you to be happy God likes it when you're happy, and God wants you to be happy. 
God made you for joy and for pleasure. This is not a secondary concern of his. Like, hey, obedience and holiness are the main business that he has with us. And if you happen to get joy and happiness on the back end, that's kind of icing on the cake. And maybe some of us operate or feel like we operate as if those things are at odds with each other. There's obedience and holiness, the main business of God. And sometimes, honestly, that feels like it's at odds with this idea of joy and happiness. Actually, C.S. Lewis says in his letters to Malcolm that joy is the very serious business of heaven. And as Scripture closes in the book of Revelation, it gives us impressions of glory And the impressions it gives us of glory are all about celebration and joy. This psalm begins with David in a dark place. We don't know where he is, but certainly there are a lot of trials in his life. It could apply to several. But it begins with, preserve me, O God, in you I take refuge. Think about where you have to be to voice those words, right? You're in a scary place. You're in a dark place. When you're praying for preservation, when you're in a situation where you're like, will I be okay? Will this end? Am I going to lose? Will I be alone? Will I be vindicated? Right? He starts in this dark place. We all find ourselves at different times where we've lost control. We can't see the way forward. We don't feel safe. We don't know the future. We don't know when this trial or this suffering will end or if it will at all. And this is a crying for refuge. He begins with, preserve me. I don't even feel like I'll survive, right? But it ends in celebration. The last fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are superlatives, right? They're big time words. So he starts crying for refuge. And when we're crying for refuge, we're not even asking for much. We're just asking to get back to normal. But this psalm doesn't end at getting back to normal. It ends in so much more celebration, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. God is a refuge in times of trouble, but he is not merely a refuge. He is so much more. That's just the beginning of his work for you. His intent is not just to restore you to safety, but to bring you to pleasures forevermore. God made you to be happy. He likes it when you're happy, and he wants you to be happy. God has been telling us from the beginning of Scripture that he made creation good and to be enjoyed, and for us as his image bearers, to be the most enjoyed by him. When our sin broke the happiness of unfettered relationship with God, what he did in the Old Testament is he laid out his Old Testament covenant promises to restore his creation and his people to joy And here's one of the things God instituted in Old Testament Israel's life of worship, right? All the boring books of the Old Testament that ruin our read-through-the-Bible-of-the-year plans, right? One of the things he does in there is he says, listen, if you're going to be the people of God, you're going to understand my promises and my love for you, one of the things you're going to have to do is you're going to have to party seven times a year. Some of the parties are several days long. You're going to think at times, no, but I've got to work. And what I want you to do is stop working for a second and party, or you will not understand my plans for you. God made rules that Old Testament Israel should party often. He's absolutely about our happiness. In the garden, when sin entered the world, the thing that made all of us not okay and not okay with God, 
Sin did not enter the world when Adam and Eve broke weird, arbitrary rules that don't make any sense. It entered the world when they looked at the fruit and they entertained this thought, God is withholding good things from me. They looked at the fruit and they thought, this food looks tasty, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's good for gaining wisdom. Before they ever ate it, they had become suspicious of God's goodness toward them. They thought, okay, I think right now I have to choose between God and something that makes me happy. That's the heart of sin, is to believe that that's the choice between God I can follow him, or I can choose something that makes me happy. That's where sin entered the world, is entertaining that idea. The Westminster Catechism, which is the old confession that this, the, the denomination this church is a part of, subscribes to, begins with this. What is the purpose of man? The purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This psalm that begins with a a humble petition for simple security that things will be okay, God's intent for us is far more. We are made as pleasure seekers. And if we're not careful, then the, the actual sinful character of God is that we've been going about the business of of trying to be happy, and God is always threatening to show up and tell us, no, don't do the thing that makes you happy. And the reality is, is not, the problem is not that we seek pleasure. That's not the problem. The problem is that we seek pleasure in the things of the world and not the one who's given us the world. In chasing other gods, right, creation, their sorrows multiply. So I won't drink offerings of blood or pour out or take their names on my lip. In chasing the other gods, in chasing creation, their sorrows multiply. Let me illustrate what I mean by a couple of, for a few minutes that by this idea of like actually the reason that we're unhappy is because we set our hearts on the gifts and not the giver. So I have four daughters, and this is a this is a hypothetical. This did not in fact happen, much to their chagrin. Um, one of them is fixated on the Apple universe; has to have every Apple product, uh, which she has very few. Uh, she's been clamoring for years. Her birthday was last week. She asked for the, an Apple Watch. She's been clamoring for years for an Apple Watch. We haven't gotten it for her. I don't know if we ever will. But I want you to imagine these two scenarios. Is she fills out a sweepstakes on a website for an Apple Watch and she receives it, right? Her wildest dream materializes. And she gets it. Is she excited at that moment? Absolutely. For a while... But how does it go with everything in the world, which includes Apple Watches? Over time, it gets a little less fun and a little more obsolete, right? She enjoys the watch, but then over time, it becomes obsolete, and then ultimately, it leaves her wanting or needing something else. We've all been in that dynamic, right? And the pain of wanting maybe only grows every time that we get what we want, and the enjoyment of it inevitably recedes. Now, imagine a second scenario. And imagine it, because my children remind you it didn't happen. Imagine I take her to breakfast for her birthday and say, I got you something, I want you to open this. And she opens it, and her wildest dream comes true. I bought her an Apple Watch. Is she ecstatic? Absolutely. Does she enjoy it? Absolutely. Does her enjoyment of it recede over time? Yes. As it recedes over time, does she still have something more, richer, and deeper? Absolutely. 
because in my giving of it and her enjoyment of it, she got more than simply an Apple Watch. She got a moment and an encouragement and a building up of father-daughter affection. So she got more of me. And as the Apple Watch fades, what she has of me doesn't. Because ultimately what she has is that relationship, right? Sin is when we say we don't want anything of the giver, we just want his gifts. And when we do that and the gifts fade away, we have nothing left, just multiplying sorrows and more wanting. The problem is not that we seek pleasure. The problem is that we seek it apart from the one who truly gives it. His rules are not prohibitions to pleasure. They are rules for preventing us from multiplying sorrows in our own life. God made you to be happy. Application number one. This is for the kids here, kids. You only have to listen for the next 90 seconds, okay? If your parents listen to their lunch today, they're going to debate about what a definition of joy is. You don't have to do that. That sounds too philosophical or weird. You're probably better at defining joy than any of us adults in the rooms, but that's our fault. Okay, we're sorry. But here's your application. At lunch today, kids, I want you to look your parents in the eye. Don't look away. Keep staring. Make your parents look away, okay? Stare at them and say, do you know that Jesus wants me to be happy? Now here, kids, I'm going to tell you about what happened to all of the parents in this room, including myself. We all said, that's sweet, but I need to tell my kid immediately after they say that. But hey, you can't just do whatever you want. So parents, here's your second sermon application. You've got to debate joy at lunch today. Here's your second sermon application. You are not allowed to qualify your child's statement. Kids, you have to tell your parents today, Jesus wants me to be happy. Parents, all you're allowed to say is, yes, he does. Isn't that good? You're not allowed to say, but that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. At that moment, if you really want sermon extra credit, buy a second dessert. Because if you're a Christian, you already bought one dessert. But you're a little bit suspicious that God wants to have two desserts. He does. God is all about sugar and carbs, y'all. He gives us wine and bread. Okay? All right. Kids, please do that today. You would be ministering to us, to your parents. Four application points real quick, then we're done. How do we get ourselves back to joy? Just four themes in the psalm. How do we pray ourselves back to joy? What, what David says next, he says, For the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, and whom is my delight? First thing that David does is he remembers God's people, his people. Y'all, to get back to joy, we have to get with God's people again. Joy is really hard to experience alone. We're made in the image of a Trinitarian God, and the path from fear to joy involves getting with your people. You can't do it alone. We're made without the capacity to do it alone. Despair flourishes when we're alone. When we're in that dark and hopeless place, for many of us, maybe it's even just a gray place, which can also be scary. You got to get with the people of hope. Get around the people of hope. Not the people of naivete, who think that hope and joy are simple things, and they are not and aren't sensitive to the reality that actually joy and suffering can exist, but the people who live in this good news, and you'll find that their hope is contagious. Faith, hope, joy, and love are all social contagions. 
when you get around people that have them, they get on you and in you. Right? If you need the hope of joy again, it's contagious. Get with those who have it. And also be prepared for this. Be prepared to be surprised that the people facing the deepest suffering sometimes are the people experiencing the richest joy. Because oftentimes it's the case that the people who are in Jesus who are suffering deeply, who have come face to face with our frailty and our suffering and our vulnerability, they have discovered more deeply and cling more hard or just tightly to the hope of the resurrection. So getting with the people of joy is not necessarily getting with the people with a positive disposition or the people who aren't suffering. In fact, you may find that we're often ministered to by those who are deep in suffering because everything's been stripped away and all they have at that point is Jesus and resurrection. And man, there's some deep joy present in that place. So get with the people of joy. Secondly, we've got to get into a child's mentality and get away from our orphan mentality. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is David celebrating the inheritance that he has in the Lord. An orphan lives with scarcity mindset. This means an orphan lives with a constant anxious calculation of what more that they need, how they can get it, threatened or worried that they may lose it, jealous, threatened by what others have, and embittered that others have it. When David says, the Lord is my chosen portion, portion means inheritance, cup means joy. The Lord is your inheritance and joy. The lines that have fallen for him, the lines are the allotment of his inheritance. He is celebrating the beautiful inheritance he has. These are the words of a child that is living confidently in his father's house and under his father's care. An orphan lives with scarcity mindset, always looking for what he or she can get. A child or a son or his daughter free, a son or a daughter is free. A child never covets their parents' home. They would never even think to. A child actually lives with the freedom to both enjoy and share their parents' home because the home is an extension of and experiences the parents' love and embrace. We have to get back into that child mentality and realize that that orphan mentality has overcome us. Next, right, so first get with the people of joy if you're struggling. Recognize that that orphan mentality has creeped in and pray yourself back into that child's mentality. Next, go back to the promises of God, to his word, to his counsel. I bless the Lord who has given me counsel so that in the night my heart can instruct me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Y'all, cognitive behavioral therapy is not a new idea. It's something modern therapeutic world has stolen from Old Testament Israel and God's wisdom. You know what God's people have been doing for thousands of years is what we've already done today. We came into a relationship with God and we started and we said, hey, there's a lot of distorted things in my life that I think I've got to name. So we did. They lead me astray. They're part of me. They're in me. I'm going to name all the distorted thinking and the distorted things in my life. And then what do we do? We sit under the preaching of God's word. He then tells us the truth that we then speak back to those lies we've embraced. Right? 
Cognitive behavioral therapy has been happening since Old Testament Israel. Going back to the truths, naming the lies we've embraced, the dysfunctions of our life, saying, yeah, I don't, I don't know why they've gotten a hold of me. Name them. It's the opposite of what, Harry, uh, what they're worried about in Harry Potter, uh, right? Don't name the bad guys because then you give them power. No, when we name the lies, we begin to take their power away. And then God starts mapping the truths onto our lives and into our hearts and our imaginations, right? Worship is intended to burn the story of God's redeeming and restoring love into our imaginations so deeply so that in the night, both the literal night but also the dark night of the soul, when the lies come and they assault us and they lead us to despair and they shine so bright with a false light, we can recognize them and we can retell our hearts and our imaginations the true story. Keep going back to God's promises. You don't even have to feel it. It's okay if you find it hard to believe. Just keep humming the tune. Keep setting the Lord before you. And over time, you will grow more sure and more stable and unshakable so that when the lies come and they threaten to take over our minds in those dark nights, you have the story that's burned into your imagination. I am made in God's image for his pleasure my selfishness and self-obsessions led me astray and into sorrow and despair and in fear and far from his presence into hurting lives of others. But he wouldn't let me go. He covered my shame. He paid for my sins and he conquered death. And so neither these circumstances nor death has power to destroy me. And it's not just that I'm going to be okay. I can have joy now in part as a foretaste of the greater joy when we join him in glory. Get with the people of joy Get back into that child mindset. Get away from that orphan mindset. Get into the word. And then lastly, come to the table. David's going to guide us there. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure because I know you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Before David bursts forth in celebration, he sings about the hope that he saw dimly and now we see more clearly that in God we are not abandoned to death. Sadness is a holy emotion. Sadness is a gift from God that he gave to Adam and Eve. This is from the Christian counselor, John Cox. He, he, I remember when he said this. He said he gave it to Adam and Eve as they left the garden as a blinking light on the dashboard of life so that they will never forget something's wrong and do not be content until you've found the thing that quiets that light, and do not settle for anything less than something that conquers the evil in man's heart and the greatest strength of that evil, which is death. Have very high standards for what you seek to heal the ail what ails you. Do not settle for anything than something that will conquer the evil that is in our hearts and everyone's hearts and something that will conquer death. Sadness was given us to force us to continually be questing until we find something that conquers the evil in our hearts and death itself. Until we find the one who will not abandon us to death. Sadness and joy are not mutually exclusive. In fact, in God's divine wisdom, he even uses our sadness to bring us to his joy and happiness. Let sadness send you to that quest and don't settle for anything that numbs the sadness except for that which will not abandon you 
to death. Friends, this table is a reminder of the one who not only he wasn't abandoned to Sheol, but all of those in him are not abandoned either, but rather rejoice in him in resurrection life. What this is, is this is a save the date. This points us backwards and forwards. Jesus says, I want you to drink a little wine and I want you to eat a little bread and remember my body was broken like this bread and this wine, my blood was poured out like this wine in order to save you from sin and death because I love you. So we take this table and we remind we have this little physical experience, this little gospel preached to our bodies, not just our brains, right? But it also points us forward to the day we do this until the day we join him again in the Lamb's Feast, when we'll have big glasses of wine, lots of sugar, and lots of carbs, like God intended, right? This is Resurrection Day. You know, the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. We're not, this isn't Saturday, this is Sunday, right? This is the first day of the week. Why have we begun to gather on the first day of the week ever since the resurrection? Is because what we do, isn't this awesome? What we do every week is we start our week by not working, AKA not trying to justify yourself. Do you know you start every week not working? Isn't that amazing? Start, start naming Sunday morning the beginning of your week again. And then celebrating that death has been conquered. And God's like, here's what I want you to do to start your week. I don't want you to wake up Monday morning and make your list. That's what we want to do. I want you to wake up Sunday morning and realize you don't have to work to justify yourself. And I've conquered death. Get with the people of joy. Reject the orphan mindset. Get into the word and come to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. And when we're in those dark moments, it is hard to even intentionally address it, but you are powerful. You have given us a community. We're not abandoned by ourselves to, to, to sort through this, to fight the dark place. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your son. You've given us your community. And I pray now as we come to this table, we know that you've given us your life. In your name we pray. Amen.